Hello there. If you're wondering what I'm doing, I'm walking backwards into the future. I suppose you can join me if you want to. As we approach the marshes and wetlands of Ireland and southern Scandinavia, there is a certain chance that you are walking on holy ground. Though it may not look like much, this spongy peat and mushy grass might once have been the site of a lake or bog, held sacred by the inhabitants of local villages. Far from the obstacle we might see it as today, ancient people saw these places as expressways to the distant realm of the gods, and for thousands of years they congregated here to pray, pour libations, leave offerings of butter, hair, textiles, and even boats, sometimes meticulously arranged, sometimes utterly destroyed and smashed to bits with the greatest vengeance. Platforms and images of gods were erected here, and loud declarations and formulaic language could be heard on auspicious nights, along with the clatter and the shrieks, even of the offerings themselves. And on rare occasions, if you have the right demeanor, if you can approach these places and close your eyes, and you can almost sense the numinous presence of a god whose name is now forgotten, and hear the clatter of the ghost of past sacrifices. Because a darker strain, perhaps, to all of this is the practice of dumping weapons en masse. Spoils of war. Items in the thousands. Actually, in the tens of thousands. And sometimes, the remains of the defeated themselves. Sometimes we must imagine entire tribes gathering in procession to watch as selected members of their own kin, or perhaps criminals, or political prisoners of another tribe or ethnic group, ritually mutilated before they were thrust into the wetland, weighed down with sticks and stones to correct the wrong or appease some nameless superhuman entity that we sometimes feel when we approach these places and close our eyes if we have a certain demeanor. To understand why, my archaeologist friend Axel Klausen will join us to look at some basic elements of water symbolism in Norse mythology and see the development of hierarchical societies, sacrifice and votive offerings, from the cranium cults of the Nordic Neolithic to the glimmering deposits of the Bronze Age, as a prologue to our next part where we will dive deeper into the resurgence of human sacrifice in the Iron Age. You are listening to the Brute Norse Podcast. I am your host, Eric Storrison, and this is Wetland Sacrifices, Part 1. I don't think it's right to call you a recurring character anymore. You're basically my co-host. You think that's correct? Well, Uh, I think that by now you've been on at least half the episodes. This is true, of course, yeah. Um, but I would say that you're definitely the host, and I'm I'm your guest. You're my sidekick. 
Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> However you want it, man. Um, today we're going to talk about uh, wetland sacrifices, bog bodies, and uh, the symbolism of, uh, of water throughout uh, Scandinavian prehistory. From the uh, Stone Age until uh, the Iron Age, with uh, lots of Bronze Age thrown in between. Mm -hmm. And as always... We're going to segue off into many different eras and have quite a long-term perspective on this. So yeah, we're going to talk about water symbolism in the landscape and how people relate to, uh, to wetlands and water throughout the ages, but focusing mostly on ritual and sacrifice. In a sense, I think that the property of liquidity uh, suggests a level of transience. Uh, water suggests liminality. You know, if we look at common metaphors such as uh, it's all water under the bridge. Mm. Or, as the Greek uh, philosopher Heraclitus says, all is flowing. Pantarei. Thoreau said that life is like water in a river. Water refreshes us. It makes us feel well. It cleans us. And everything that water touches seems to be about transition or renewal or something like that to our perception. Yeah, right? and, and, and it's been used in various religions, you know, as a symbol. Yeah, water is very uh, important in <clears throat> religious phenomena. So water is very loaded. Whether we are talking about the vast open ocean of potential with uh, the chaos waters of mm. mythology or the directed stream. We talk about the stream of consciousness, for instance, when we're thinking about different things and going off into all sorts of directions. And, um, of course, we're going to talk a lot about marshes, bogs, and swamps. And they are, in a sense, I think, superliminal because uh, they are something between land and water. So I've got a personal anecdote here to start us off. And until recently, I was living in a cabin in what was essentially a marsh. I just wanted to get out of the city because I was miserable there, basically. And I thought that living more in the countryside would make my life easier. Burning bonfires and howling at the sky or whatnot is, uh, is fun. Chucking things into lakes. Chucking stuff into lakes. I did a little bit of that too. The marsh is essentially a big pool of slowly decomposing plant matter. And of course, in a sense, this, I think, mirrored also my inner development at the time. Archetypically, it's really a dark and dangerous place. And at the same time, I have never lived in a more fun place. Oh yeah, it's an intimate place. Yeah, really. uh, it's, it's, it's a man versus nature. <laughs> in going to the swamp in the first place, it seems that I was really just mentally preparing to get out of it. Or else I would be stuck in the swamp forever. The swamp is not a place where you want to be stuck. Take Beowulf. Uh, who lives in the swamp there? Grendel. Grendel. Monsters and ghosts. Yeah. That's the sort of things that dwell in the swamp. So you don't really want to stay there. Uh, in a sense, of course, the monster is a facet of the hero himself. Mm. And if we take the speculative uh, mythologist Joseph Campbell to heart, then he says that our lives are always, in a sense, the hero's journey. In uh, Norse mythology, there are different uh, mythological entities that belong in different worlds. They can kind of move freely about because they know how to navigate the seen and the unseen world. It just happens that humans really suck at doing so. So we're kind of stuck in our world most of the time. This is uh, an ability only possessed by great heroes and perhaps magicians, somebody who is not your average Joe. But if you want to cross into one world from another, then you often have to cross water. 
I wrote my bachelor about this actually, and uh, I called it border waters. It's kind of a lame term, I guess, but uh, these are especially described in, of course, the myths, but also in legendary sagas. They are a more imaginative genre of saga literature. They, uh, the legendary sagas are almost fairy tale-like in their content. Very fantastic, yeah, yeah, supernatural yeah. stories, basically. <clears throat> Usually, a border between one world and the next uh, runs along the horizontal axis. For example, uh, somebody will sail someplace and they end up in some odd periphery where there are trolls and whatever yeah. living there. And um, sometimes the protagonist will swim on a lake and he will disappear into a fog and when he comes up on the other side, maybe a long time after, there will be monsters there. So sometimes this border can be very vague especially in the cases where people go across. In other cases, it's more clear-cut, uh, where you have a river, for example. A river is a very clear border. Yeah. You jump from one side to the next, or you swim across or wade mm. across it. And on the other side, things are just different. Then again, you have something that can seem a little bit more odd to us, that you can actually go through water to come to the other world. There's one saga, a very short saga, called uh, Thorsteins Thotterböjarmagens where the protagonist follows an elf boy who jumps into a river and they wade through the water and it says that it's not liquid, it's like wading through smoke. And they come out through a waterfall and once he is there, he is unable to return uh, from whence he came. So it's like a portal to the other world. It's a one-way ticket to the other world. And sometimes these other worlds seem to open and close so that you get the sense that you don't choose to go to the other world. Yeah. Uh, it kind of just opens uh, to you and you just find yourself there. But Norse mythology as well has numerous sacred wells and pools which can be approached by the gods who seek esoteric knowledge. When Odin in the Hovamol hangs himself to receive the runes, he falls down along the axis of the world tree and suddenly finds himself with the giants. We can speculate that he goes through the well at the base of the world tree which is described under various names in the sources, though this is not explicitly stated in the poem. He just falls down and he is with the giants, drinking mead. Grimness Mall is another poem uh, where dozens of cosmic rivers are named, and they all flow from one common source under Yggdrasil. In this case, the pool is called Hvergelmir, and it's stated to be the origin of all flowing waters. Grimnesmal also mentions a place called Sokwabekir, which literally means sunken bench, where the goddess Saga lives. And by the way, Saga is probably an alternative name for the goddess Frigg, whose abode is called Fensalir, meaning the bog halls. In Grimnesmal, Odin and Saga are described as gazing up at the waves rippling above. And likewise, the god Egir is frequently uh, the host of drinking mm. parties that the gods attend. But it's never quite described as an aquatic realm, like in Spongebob Squarepants, for example. They're not at the bottom of the sea. Presumably, we are to understand that this is a land that somehow exists beyond the water, but in a vertical instead of an mm -hmm. horizontal axis. Uh, sometimes people talk about Norse cosmology and they are fixed with the idea of the nine worlds. And they are looking to identify the different worlds by their names. But if we look at all the sources, the picture isn't that clear-cut, really. The gods sometimes exist across the ocean, sometimes they exist in the sky, 
And presumably, this seemingly contradictory cosmology was part of one coherent picture to, uh, to people living in pre- pre-Christian Scandinavia. Uh, it's just that the way of making sense of the world is so different that to us mm. it, it seems strange. And there is a precedence for this idea that you can go to, um, to the other world through water in, uh, in folklore and, and other mythologies of, uh, of people who lived close to the Norsemen. In many cultures, the other world is conceptualized as an inverted version of our own, and it is one where people walk backwards, they talk backwards, they are left-handed frequently, and they wear their clothes inside out. And, of course, the world is upside down. The sun also moves counterclockwise. Among Siberian peoples, the Sami, and even on Gotland, there is even an idea that people in the other world walk with their souls against ours, so they're walking upside down. And scholars argue that these ideas are probably derived from seeing the world reflected in lakes and ponds during calm weather. Mm. This explains not only why the other world is often conceptualized as upside down, but also inverted left to right, and also approachable through water. It is essentially a counterpart. Yeah. An inverted counterpart. Yeah, it's a complementary to, to our world. In Sami religion especially, this features very heavily, and there are certain pools of water that were believed to have a double bottom with a hole connecting the two. So the Noidi, a sort of ritual specialist in Sami religion, could turn himself into a fish and swim down through uh, to resurface in the other world. And uh, these pools of water are called saivu or saive. This is not originally a Sami word, but derives from Proto-Germanic saivas, meaning sea in modern English, and sjö in Norwegian. Now get this, the word soul and Norwegian shell come from Proto-Germanic saiwalo, meaning something that pertains to the sea. So this all seems to form a quite coherent picture, which would explain how these things just seem to be in common throughout the ages and Mm. across so many cultures. But at the same time, these are things that are very basic and observable and could probably not always be explained through continuity. Uh, these are things that could have occurred across the ages and people could lose them and pick up on it again. Mm, mm. And the fact that this makes such sense to us when we're talking about it probably confirms this. Definitely, yeah. So obviously, Iron Age boat and ship burials suggest that the land of the dead could be visited by traveling across a waterway. And there are numerous instances of burial mounds being placed on small islands and even cases where they have been placed on a peninsula that might have turned into an island at high tide, creating a sort of portal that opens and closes. Mm. In Bogre, for example, in eastern Norway, there are even instances of moats being dug to create an artificial grave island. There are also wetland sacrifices, and these continue throughout the pre-Christian ages, but they kind of come and go, don't they? They do, yeah. At any rate, even though we have been talking about Norse mythology so far, these generally predate uh, the uh, the Viking Age by hundreds of years, oh, even thousands. thousands. Thousands, and they do change yeah. across the eras. Yeah. Well, um, the practice of using still water, that to say wetlands, bogs, marshes, what have you, as a place where you would deposit items, objects, people, food, what have you. Um, 
Within Scandinavia, the earliest evidence we have is from the Mesolithic. And for those of you who uh, tuned in to the previous um, podcast, will know that the Mesolithic is the Middle Stone Age. <clears throat> so, and in Scandinavia, that is a period that is uh, before the, the Neolithic and uh, after the Paleolithic. Mm. And um, what we do find in uh, areas that would have been wetlands uh, back then, but mind you that the, the landscape back then was radically different than the landscape that makes up Scandinavia today. Hmm. And Very different climatical conditions. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But also the, the, the topography <laughs> <laughs> is completely different. Uh, essentially, you know, because of the glaciers receding, melting and disappearing, um, the whole landscape start to submerge, almost like Atlantis, mm. uh, in a way, but reversed. Yeah. But essentially, what happens is that um, the land starts to gradually, you know, elevate, and and that is something that is true today. Mm. Uh, Norway, uh, in, uh, I mean, elevates in approximately one, one and a half millimeters every year. Mm. And that's a whole lot when you think about it. <laughs> and and it's, it's continuing to this day. Yeah, the coast is continually changing. Oh, yeah, but not yeah. just the coast, but you know, inland as well, mountains, everything, you know, it just, mm. it's just... It gets higher and higher. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so we're always peaking, you could say. Yeah. <laughs> um, but... What we do see, of course, back then is that the mountainous area areas of Norway was once uh, the coastline. Um, so when you're having excavations in in an area uh, close to like Stone Age settlements, you of course find uh, debris, you find you know the, the daily lives and what have you. And incidentally, you also find um, deposits in in what would have been a lake back then. Um, and these deposits can consist of anything. Uh, it could be uh, uh, like animal remains, skeletal remains that is. Uh, it could be uh, remains of um, tools. Um, or it could be even remains of uh, fragments of people. Um, but they're not consistent. And it's problematic for us to consider these remains necessarily as uh, sacrifices to ADT or DTs. Mm. Um, so, so we don't really know how to interpret these. Some people uh, favor um, the idea that these are uh, sacrifices, while others say they're more, uh, well, not planned as such. Mm. Uh, it might be storage or actually just uh, a place to throw junk, really. <laughs> trash. Yeah, so <laughs> so like a, chucking a, yeah, a trash bin, a prehistoric yeah. trash bin, you know, yeah. just chucking it like... <laughs> out of sight, out of uh, mind. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and it should be mentioned, though, that, of course, when you're excavating, uh, and, and I've partaken in, in, in quite a few of these, but when you're excavating a Stone Age settlement, you basically find all the trash, the rubbish, that's to say, on the same site. So they didn't really manage their uh, junk uh, that uh, well as we do today. Mm. So essentially, you know, you could live on top of a trash pile <laughs> and you wouldn't really mind. Um, but uh, there's, a, of course, a digression. But um, but yeah, so, so we do see this practice as early as the Mesolithic, probably. Um, but it's not until the Neolithic that we can definitely say that people did without a 
without sacrifice into uh, wetlands. Mm. And uh, it's especially the funnel beaker culture that has this um, uh, tradition, so to speak, or, or does this uh, to, to an extreme extent. Um, and I'm not going to go too much into each and every of these cultures in and around Scandinavia during this time period because there's a whole lot of them. Um, but what I can say is that um, the Fumblebeaker culture existed in Scandinavia approximately around 4000 BC uh, to about 2800. Uh, of course, these are tentative dates um, mm. based upon uh, typology and uh, also some absolute datings of, of settlements. And uh, I guess a lot of people know about the Fumblebeaker culture because of their extent and also um, their um, their quite characteristic beakers, <laughs> you know, they look like funnel funnels, so. Yeah. Um, but they're uh, actually more of a South Scandinavian um, culture, and uh, in, for instance, Norway, uh, like much of Southwestern, Northern Norway, and much of Sweden, uh, like Northeastern, Northern Sweden, and what have you, um, this culture did not extend into those areas. So you don't have that practice of sacrificing um, like uh, earthenware or uh, um, like you know, consummated animals, like skeletal remains, you know, like where they've uh, cleared out the marrow and the bones and they've thrown the rest into the lake uh, together with, for instance, earthenware vessels. Or So you can clearly see that it might have been a ritualistic um, feast. Yeah. Um, so they are. They could be sharing this, uh, yeah, this meal with the with the with the gods, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah, yeah. Throwing the. Uh, of course. This is, but we see this uh, also in uh, in other cultures, like uh, in Greek yeah. in Greek myth. Yeah, there is course, a, yeah, an explanation yeah. why. Yeah. You know the the myth of Pro- Prometheus. Yeah. How the uh, the gods are fooled, essentially into uh, accepting the inedible parts of mm. the uh, of the animal sacrifice. Yeah. And and it's something that um, we we know uh, from other sources, classical sources, that for instance during um, um, the big celebration of Athena in, in Athens, you would sacrifice uh, large amounts of of meat. Uh, I'm not sure it's just, if it's just for Athena, but it's for the gods essentially, mm. um, and it would be like a communal um, uh, meal. Well, basically, the state funded <laughs> the meal uh, for the citizens, of course, but also for for the gods. Mm. And um, it's interesting because they would have taken, as far as I'm, uh, well, I'm not too read up on this, but as far as I know, they would have taken the best cup from themselves and they would have left the rest for the gods because they only want to inhale the smell yeah. of of uh, burning meat or you know. Of, yeah, the, uh, the gods delight in those. Uh, in yeah, those because because they don't actually eat it. Mm. As such, it's more the act, and it's almost like incense, you know. It's like, <laughs> the, or perfume in a way. Zeus is walking into the kitchen, going, mm. yeah, and then it just kind of leaves. Yeah, yeah. Because, Thank because, you. yeah exactly. <laughs> um, so, but it's, uh, it's of course, this is later than than uh, than the Stone Age. Uh, but it's it's possible that uh, the the uh, the cost uh, the. Um, the tradition, so to speak, and, and the idea and the act is, is of course, something that uh, can be extended back to uh, the, at least the Neolithic. Um, 
But uh, incidentally, as I said, you know, the other cultures in, in and around Scandinavia at the same time, they don't partake in this. Uh, and they have like, and, and it's, it's worth mentioning, of course, uh, I should probably mention it to begin with, that the uh, Funnelbeaker culture is the first uh, clearly uh, defined Neolithic culture. That's to say an um, agricultural and pastoral society. Mm. Um, of course, we do have uh, cultures before this, uh, which is called Achtebulla, uh, which is a Danish uh, culture, mm. uh, more or less, extends into northern Germany, uh, which did also have animal husbandry. Um, and animal husbandry is the first indication um, that people, you know, started settling down more permanently instead of being um, nomadic, like many of the hunter-gatherers. Mm. Uh, so basically, we would have just kept animals follow them around but they didn't necessarily uh, till the land or you know um, grow crops or anything that is something the uh, uh, funnel culture uh, introduces and the funnel beaker uh, culture is of course uh, eastern southeastern so it comes from Eurasia uh, or you know the western parts or eastern parts of, of, of Europe um, it, it's always difficult to you know like, uh, uh, pinpoint where they originate, yeah. but about their their culture spread through uh, most likely marriage and uh, migration and um, one or the other. Um, so uh, so they, uh, they they migrate into southern Scandinavia and they bring this culture with them with sacrificing into wetlands. Um, and after um, this, um, so for instance, um, you you have another culture called uh, pitted wear culture. Uh, they don't practice this. Uh, they're they're kind of, uh, you could say they're the, the date of Pitiware culture is uh, suggested to be around three thousand two hundred to about two thousand eight hundred BC, um, and they're found in and around the vicinity of uh, uh, of uh, funnel beaker culture. Mm. Um, so so they have like interactions with them as was the case of course with the hunter gatherers um but they don't partake they don't seem to want to it's it's an interesting um dynamic between these two different sets of life it's it's even more radical in a way uh than like examples later uh, because you know the, uh, the the concept of agriculture is such a strange and alien concept in Europe at the time Mm. Uh, which has been predominant, you know, uh, dominated by by hunter gatherers. So, so it's something very, very different. Uh, it's almost like seeing a UFO, you know. You know <laughs> yes. What are you doing? It's like uh, not very well understood. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Technology. Yeah, exactly. You know, and 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 the concept of building larger houses and fencing and you know. Uh, for hunter gatherers, it must have been. <laughs> yeah. Like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> they're like used to roaming the land, and now there's like people putting up fences. <laughs> it's unthinkable. You know, it's like don't fence me in, man. <laughs> so, so it's it must have been quite an interesting um, experience to 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 you know being used to just doing your your thing, rummaging around, and then suddenly you know people are uh, putting up fences, but also putting up uh, grave monuments. Uh, yeah, it's 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 a strange thing because they 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 manifest in the landscape in, in a completely different way. Moving huge stones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. megalithic um, mm. tombs essentially for a, a family or for a community, and there's a whole lot of them in Denmark. I mean, they're all over the place. Um, there's only three found in Norway, and they're only in and around the Oslo fjord, 
so eastern part of Norway, uh, incidentally, which is where we find the uh, culture, uh, or at least the archaeological traces uh, after the culture. Uh, there might have been like some in the uh, uh, periphery that kind of dealt with both sides of the society. That's to say, they were perhaps, I guess, kind of semi-nomadic slash hunter-gatherers and sedentary farmers. We don't really know. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are some indications that there some contact between the uh, hunter-gatherers and the um, uh, the um, Beaker culture people. Um, so they, of course, would have interacted with them and that might have in turn affected their own lifestyle. Mm-hmm. But in the core areas, there's no indication of that taking yeah. place. So they they, oh, they yeah. are not part, they don't want anything to do with these wetland sacrifices. Exactly. Yeah. So, so that stops. Uh, so that stops. Yeah, and that's the case for much of the Neolithic. Uh, after the Funnelbeaker culture gets uh, replaced or displaced by, uh, for instance, the Cory Ware culture, uh, or also known as the Battle Axe culture. Mm. Uh, seen as the origin of the Indo-Europeans, or at least migrating into Europe. It's and a good name, them. battle axe culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and it might mention that it's because of the characteristic battle axes, yeah. <laughs> which seem yeah. to be be both uh, practical, functional, but also s- uh, ceremonial. Yeah, and what we do see is that the uh, later battle axe culture, they start wearing the same axes, characteristic axes for, for their culture, but they're cast in in, in copper. And, um, of course, then you also have the casting bridge line. And in Scandinavia, they replicate this. So, so they see these uh, cast copper axes, and they don't have the access to the metal. And they're like, we want that, <laughs> but we're going to make a copy in stone, including yeah. the casting bridge. <laughs> <laughs> so so it's, it's, it's meticulous work. And they probably had like a live, real uh, axe in front of them, and they could just replicate what they saw. The, the, the world's most obvious knockoff. But yeah, I mean, yeah, it's exactly, you know, it's a, you're trying to pass to something you're not. And um, of course, you know, in, in Scandinavia at the time, stone was the shit, essentially. Mm-hmm. And But they probably knew of, of something else, another material. And uh, of course, when you, when you think about the allure uh, and the process of casting, you know, uh, heating the metal, making it molten, and you know, casting, and, and, and it's it's uh, it's very unique, and it's a completely different approach to making something than uh, you know, napping, reducing the size of stone, and then polishing it and, and shaping it. Um, it's a completely different craft, and um, and that's why we also see that um, there might be some indications. Of course, they're vague. But there might be some indications that these particular axes, the battle axes in, in this period, um, which is around 2000 to uh, 4000 uh, BC, um, or l- later, depending upon where in Scandinavia you are and where in Europe you are, mm. um, that they might have been uh, put into uh, wetlands. Uh, there is a th- three instances in Norway that I know of. Uh, two of them are from East Norway. One of them is from Buskerud, uh, which was found uh, in, in a fjord, uh, but it might have been lost while crossing uh, the ocean, because it is seawater. It would have been seawater back then as well. Oh, I see, yeah. Um, you know, the individual who went to great lengths to, 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 to get this commissioned or whatever, you know, lost it. <laughs> so yeah. it must have been quite furious. If, if that is indeed the case though we don't really know uh it might have been intentional yeah because we're going to see this uh, as we go along that a lot of these instances are kind of questionable in terms of 
whether or not we can interpret them as sacrifices or not. Especially in this uh, time period, this early on. Mm. Uh, of course, we know for a fact later on that the intention is, without a doubt, a sacrifice. Uh, yeah, but I'm mentioned. thinking more like like bog bodies, for instance. Yeah, Because yeah, yeah. uh, there are many different things being yeah, uh, deposited it, 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 in yeah, the it, waters, it, it, but um, we don't always know what the intention was. And yeah, sometimes, exactly. and we will see that... Mm, it's kind of up to interpretation, but yeah. the interpretations are usually quite interesting also. Like, so it's not that you're sacrificing, uh, excuse the pun, uh, one one cool interpretation for a less, lesser cool one. No, no, exactly. No. No, no. I mean, they're all so, just as interesting. Yeah, we're talking about everything from like uh, cranium cults to uh, like true crime yeah, yeah. Of, of archaeology. No, I mean, so, so, so we do, we do have uh, several instances of, of, of uh, these lakes and uh, wetlands being used. And just recently, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure a lot of people have heard about this. It's the, uh, the, um, the find in Sweden, in, in, the, in the lake, we had these um, uh, spikes with heads put on. Yeah. In this artificial <laughs> lake slash uh, mound in the lake, which was clearly man-made. Um, and it's in, um, for those of you who don't know, it's in uh, Kanal Jorden, uh, in Sweden, uh, where, um, um, I'm not going to do too much in, in background of this, but essentially there were uh, road workers or workers working on a railroad, and they found uh, in an area um, in, uh, in Sweden, where they were doing working on this um, this uh, construction essentially, uh, which is dated to approximately uh, between five and six thousand BC, um, and it would have been uh, like a kind of a swampy bog lake mixture. It's difficult, of course, to reconstruct the landscape, uh, mm. you know, back then uh, completely uh, and, and accurately, but um, um, it, it essentially was like a pile of stones and that contained the skeletal remains uh, of at least 10 individuals uh, and weapons made out of stone and antler uh, at least weapons slash tools most likely about the yeah. mm. uh, but he also found remains of bears, deers, uh, boar uh, and uh, a single badger and, uh, a single badger. Yeah, a single badger. <laughs> One badger. Yeah, good. <laughs> and uh, two of the uh, skulls were mounted on uh, pointed stakes, uh, which gives an interesting, um, I would say, uh, picture of, of how, what it would have looked like. Uh, especially that it is probably would have seen for a modern audience extremely gruesome and yeah. disgusting, uh, something but, you would associate with barbarism. You know? Yeah, but these to these uh, Stone Age people, it's like uh, visiting a, a grandma. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that's exactly. Yeah. It's, it's it's more of a shrine, I think, mm. than uh, than trying to uh, fool. Well, not a fool, but like uh, you know, co uh, like uh, dishonor the uh, the individuals who uh, who were you know put there. Um, so essentially, it is a burial ground. Mm. One should interpret it as a burial ground. We we often like this is. Uh, we keep returning to these things because we're extremely fascinated by this, you know, religious violence and these kind of gruesome, uh, kind of morbid finds. Mm. Um, but then again, there are a lot of them. Yeah. And I I, I met um, 
I was at a conference a few years ago, and uh, the um, the archaeologist Neil Price was there. And during the break, he was like standing outside. He was smoking a cigarette or something, and he had just been talking about the Salma, the boat burials. Mm-hmm. You know how they found like a pyramid of, yeah. of dead people, thirty-three yeah, yeah, yeah. people in Estonia, like, yeah, yeah, stacked on top of each other. He was just like you know puffing a cigarette and said, "Yeah, you know, I wouldn't want to go back there." <laughs> I wouldn't actually want to go and see the stuff that we are. I think I think that's extremely yeah. condescending, though, in in a way. To be frankly honest, from from my own perspective, mind uh, you. Yeah, yes, but but also I think <clears throat> Neil Price kind of knows what he's talking about sure. because I, I, he's I, I, uh, I he's, he's also excavated uh, mass graves from mm, recent mm. Uh, genocides, so he's he's had this pretty close to uh, to home. In a yeah, sense, yeah, yeah. but yeah, of course, if we're gonna see this with our modern, we have to kind of leave our exactly, modern exactly. judgments that, at the that, door. That, that's you what know? I mean, you know. Yeah, because a lot of these things are totally intolerable uh, to a modern audience, um, but uh, might have been perfectly natural for past men. Yeah, it's it's like um, in a way we we tend to think that extreme violence is something um, that only belongs in. The past, you know, as, as often it's shown, you're portrayed in battles and what have you, and like, yeah. but, but it actually happens today as well. And of course, you can't justify the means when, when it comes to genocide, for instance, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but but we have to remember that this this act still happens today uh, for whatever reason. And uh, it's not to say that these uh, de- uh, deposits that we have in um, these uh, wetlands all are. Uh, the act of violence, no, which is important to keep in mind. Uh, it's it's often a, an act of reverence. Uh, it's an act of uh, trying to c- uh, communicate with uh, the other world, mm. whatever other world it might be. Um, and if that entails sacrificing humans, for instance, as it did in the pre-Roman Iron Age, uh, animals, mm. um, or or metal, then whatever mm. uh, you use to to achieve that. You, you do it, you know. I like so. that we're rationalizing human sacrifice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's... it's it's. Heathens take notes. In, in a way, you know, we shouldn't judge the past for what it was. I think it's uh, incorrect for us to, to, to take that stance. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm totally fine with people sacrificing uh, people in the past. Yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. But I think that, I but, think but, that but, actually a lot of... A lot of scholars have uh, been very reluctant to interpret oh, yes. all sorts of finds as but, but also talk you know? about it as a yeah. subject, to be frankly honest. Uh, yeah. I, I remember reading um, that for most of the post-World War II, for instance, of course kind of because of the uh, atrocities done by the uh, Nazis and what have you, yeah. you know, the whole Germanic culture was just tainted, which mm. also included the Vikings, of course. Um, and anything associated with that particular culture, and of course, you know, we have a lot of bog sacrifices, uh, you know, wetland sacrifices in, in yeah. Scandinavia. So it all just got tainted, and no one wanted to discuss it yeah. because what it entailed, because it entailed people being sacrificed, <laughs> this, uh... or, 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 or stuff belonging to people being sacrificed. Yeah, and just everything, even even the Bronze Age, which is which kind of seemed like a peaceful period, which of course we know <laughs> isn't necessarily true. Yeah, no. Tolense, for instance, in, yeah. in northern Germany, but but still, uh, you know, it was like idealized as a peaceful period. But still, they didn't want to touch anything that had to do with. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like uh, with the Vikings, for example. Uh, medieval Scandinavians were convinced that their Viking Age ancestors sacrificed people. Uh, people living close to the Vikings thought the Vikings were sacrificing people. The only people who doesn't think the Vikings didn't sacrifice people are some, you know, modern scholars. Mm. And we don't even know. Okay, so in ancient Greece, for example, 
Greeks thought that uh, other Greeks were sacrificing people, but they were often saying that, no, we don't do it, but those guys, you know, living across the mountain do. So it's like, it's, uh, people consider it to be perfectly, like, like it was a possible expression of the cult, but not everyone does it. You don't yeah. do it all the time, necessarily. Exactly. So there are many levels to this, but at the same time, Conference. This was the same conference as uh, as where Neil Price said mm. he didn't want to. Yeah, we, we wouldn't past, like we wouldn't like to be transported back and witness all these things. There was another scholar. I will not uh, name them, <laughs> but uh, but uh, Olaf Sundqvist did like uh, a talk about some recent uh, finds indicating human sacrifice in the Iron Age. I think in in Sweden, mm. and, uh, and there was this scholar who was like. Uh, uh, big authority in the field of uh, Norse religion uh, just asked, so what are we back at human sacrifice now? As if entertaining the notion mm -hmm. is like uh, you're giving the thumbs up. But, but, but that's what I mean. I think it's more the individual than the actual prehistoric period you're discussing. I think that many people nowadays mm. find the idea revolting. Yeah. And therefore uh, it had to be revolting in the past. You know, and that, of course it's unthinkable that people in the past use people <laughs> to communicate with uh, you know the other world mm. uh, by, by sacrificing them of course um, can we so. continue down this path maybe and like talk about uh, about yeah, sure, human, yeah. human sacrifices like yeah because it's 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 I might just mention very really quick though of course we do have skeletal remains in in uh, osteological remains of, of people being uh, put into bogs uh, wetlands lakes in uh, in the Stone Age but it's difficult to interpret them as being whole bodies or just remains of bodies mm. being put into. Um, so, but um, after the Stone Age, uh, we have the Bronze Age. Yeah. And of course, it's a metallic age and the metal having its lure, you know, yeah. you can cast it, you can shape it, you can make it into all kinds of stuff, um, makes it unique. Uh, and incidentally, in the Bronze Age, there are no human sacrifices we don't know human sacrifices no human no. sacrifices no uh, remains of any people or anything uh, not even remains of or at least very little remains of uh, food or bones or, or what have you mm. uh, so it goes to show that in the bronze age some scholars say that people in the bronze age being part of a like globalization um, because you have like goods moving from a to b to c to d of a mm. large areas and people migrating over large areas as we now know through uh, strontium isotope uh, analysis um, such as egg fate and skistrup and uh, these damn globalists with their world peace <laughs> 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 but it's very interesting though that you have like in a period of time uh, people actually doing what we're basically doing now of course to, to a far less extent. I'm not saying yeah. that people from the other side of the world migrated to Scandinavia and people from Scandinavia... Yeah, they could be the uh, hanging their dead in trees or something. You know? could yeah, be, yeah. And, and, and that's be, the yeah. thing. It's We don't really know for, yeah. for, for certain if um, if they, of course, didn't sacrifice humans in the mm. Bronze Age. Uh, but and there's we, no proof to say they did. Yeah, and we used to think that the Bronze Age was this uh, period where no warfare was going on mm. at all. Then we find these... Uh, Grizzly battles. Yeah, 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 we find huge, huge, yeah. huge yeah. battles uh, involving thousands of people. You know, mm. over a large area as well. 
not 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 as large as the Mediterranean. Some scholars have suggested, but at least in, in within, you know, the northern German area and mm. most likely southern Scandinavia. So so people were traveling to partake in a battle, uh, which also goes to show how organized it was. You know, yeah, uh, of course. So 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 they weren't just uh, people with clubs just running over the hill and just until they run into someone. You know, you had to gather them, you had to organize yeah. it, you have to you know take care of food and provisions and what have you. You know, it's like a lot of logistics. Um, but yeah, uh, so 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 of course the Bronze Age being what it is, um, it's more the metal being sacrificed than earthly people remains, what have you. Because mm. um, the metal is uh, is very precious. Extremely, extremely so. uh, expensive. Yeah. You, you could say, of course, uh, tentatively, that the metal has a higher value than uh, human life in the Bronze Age. Mm. Uh, which is why we find all of these, you know, like uh, helmets, Vixo helmets, uh, Bronze Age shields being sacrificed, uh, and also in uh, like the late Bronze Age. Because it's also interesting when it comes to the um, intensity of uh, the, the positions. Like in the early Bronze Age, there is little to no uh, the positions, but it kind of climbs. As yeah. you go through the Bronze Age, and they come to the Middle Bronze Age, it's like people just throwing stuff into the, <laughs> into the lake, just, just whatever they had, <laughs> just throw it into, you know, like violently or. And um, then towards uh, the end of the Middle Bronze Age, incidentally, uh, in around the same time where you have like the collapse of the Mediterranean cultures uh, oh. or the complex. Uh, oh, the Bronze Age collapse. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, then there's like a marked stop. For some reason, people don't. It's like, I guess, because it's uh, too expensive or, I don't know. We don't really know why they did it. There are many theories and not much to back it up. Um, but in the late Bronze Age, especially around 1000 BC, it starts climbing again. And it gets intensified in around 900, 700 BC. Um, and then they're like throwing stuff all over again, <laughs> like <laughs> it's, 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 they're chucking it into lakes, and um, and especially it's very interesting though because um, in this uh, period of the Bronze Age, a lot of gold is being sacrificed. So in in the Middle Bronze Age, it's predominantly just bronze or um, gilt bronze, uh, like uh, surface has mm. been um, gilt by thin gold plates, not not gilded by modern means, mind you, but like very thin hammered gold and just add it on top, uh, either through heat treating, uh, by making bond, or by some form of adhesive. Uh, so they're just coating bronze with gold. Uh, but in the Bronze Age, uh, they have like solid gold objects, uh, hammered gold, of course, you know, and, and sheet gold, essentially. Mm. Uh, but like beakers and what have you, which is also being thrown into uh, bogs. And, um, you know, the, the Vexo, Helmets, the characteristic Danish Bronze Age helmets. Oh yeah, They're with the big yeah. horns. Yeah, yeah. antlers uh, kind of thingies. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I would probably say antlers, hmm. uh, with feathers sticking out um, and tips, and most likely there being like a horse mane or a feather crest mane in the middle. Hmm. Very characteristic helmet, uh, which uh, I'm not going to talk too much about about the helmet itself. Perhaps if you have like a top five or top ten. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, finds but um, um, what we do see is that the helmets themselves were definitely used in rituals but might have been used on a battlefield I think one doesn't necessarily exclude the other um, and it would have been quite impressive you can imagine you know these warriors being clad in, in big helmets uh, with you know the feather sticking out and crests with like a Greek hoplite in a way you know it's like yeah. an impressive sight mm. 
Um, and with a big, sh or at least a shield, a sword, uh, like a bronze cuirass, greaves, uh, as is shown on uh, the, um, the petroglyphs. Uh, but also, uh, you know, uh, we have greaves uh, or shin guards or whatever you call it uh, from um, Central Europe. Yeah. So if 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 a warrior dressed in a full panoply, uh, you know, like a fully dressed warrior, it would have been like uh, metal from from top to bottom, like a, almost like a full play harness in a way, a bronze one, mind you. Um, so really heavily armored and uh, defended uh, for the day and age. So a quite an impressive sight with like the the, the feathers being colors and uh, extremely ostentatious. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so so of course the helmets being what it is, you know, such an important uh, and then being two of them and there's remains of more. So we know there were more of these helmets in circulation and we have depictions of these helmets. As well. Yeah. There's a, such a unique item that they were like offered uh, or sacrificed to to, to, to the gods or um, whoever <laughs> is on the receiving end. <laughs> mm. um, but um, and, and this, you know, continues through the late Bronze Age, and then we enter the age of human sacrifice. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and, so and, and massively so. This is like the the French Revolution. It's the, yeah, exactly. The, yeah, the Bronze Age Revolution. Okay, so the so yeah. the old order is toppled. Yeah. Old dynasties cannot maintain their power. Mm. Metal is becoming more common. Yeah, but that's yeah. the thing. It's like the most interesting thing about the Bronze Age is that there are two like crises. You have the you have the Bronze Age collapse in the Middle Bronze Age, and then you have in the Late Bronze Age the total collapse of any Bronze Age society. It's like <laughs> it's it's really like the the last nail in the coffin, you know. Um, and incidentally, it is as you mentioned, you know, the new metal. Uh, yeah. there, there can be no doubts about uh, the effects of iron uh, on the society as a whole. But it's a gradual process, so we have to be careful. It's not like suddenly there's, uh, you know, a thousand uh, sword-bearing soldiers uh, all wearing uh, uh, or, or, or wielding rather um, iron swords, uh, you know. Uh, Taking out the bronze-wearing uh, yeah. <laughs> nobility—it's—it's um, it's not how it's uh, actually perceived, or, or, or it's not supported archaeologically, no, no. to say at uh, least, uh, or to say so. But uh, what we do see is that, in the same way that uh, people in the Stone Age copied uh, bronze objects, the earliest spearheads in the pre-Roman Iron Age are actually just copies of the bronze ones. Mm. And so you have like the socket where you put the shaft into the spearhead it's created the same way. Yeah. So they didn't really know how to fold the metal or, or work the metal yet, but they clearly knew uh, how to cast metal. So working with iron was completely different than working with bronze. Uh, so, so essentially they just continue the tradition they had in the Bronze Age into the earliest period of the Iron Age and then they start figuring out how to actually work metal more efficiently and and that's when you start getting the characteristic uh, weapons of the pre-Roman Iron Age or the Celtic Iron Age or wherever in Europe mm. you are. But of course, I mean, they did use bronze in the pre-Roman Iron Age as well, but yeah, mm. that's... So what happens in the transition between the Bronze Age and the Iron Age is, as you said, the old elite was toppled um, because they no longer needed them, because I can make my own metal, most likely. Mm. Um, incidentally, um, which is perhaps why we have so many um, Bronze Age depositions, in, in like the very last period, uh, or at least not the positions, but more like hordes. 
mm. like uh, axe heads or, 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 or you know, uh, all kinds of different um, like recyclables, like uh, remains of um, uh, lures, like the signal horns, mm. um, that probably were just discarded or just gathered people no longer needed these objects yeah. mm. but they were never retrieved of course so we don't know if they were actually you know intended for that purpose or just so um so they don't have uh, the same uh, access anymore and one of the reasons uh, they don't have access to all the gold that flowed into scandinavia during the bronze age but also the copper is perhaps because of what happens in central europe and uh, some scholars uh, say that the uh, let's call them just for the sake of it, uh, it's much easier to mm. <laughs> talk about them. But the Celts, uh, of course, you know. The Celtic. The Celtic, the yeah. Celtic <laughs> pagan energies. Uh, it kind of make me uh, want to vomit. I hate the word. I hate, yeah, I, I hate it. Celtic. But, but the problem, you can't yeah. bypass yeah, it. We can't, we can't uh, can't avoid it. Of course, I could use the Hallstatt or the Latin cultures and what have you, yeah. you know, which of course is also true. But yeah, it's Everybody's like, thinking about like druids and white robes yeah. with long beards. Yeah, the mysticism and, you know, yeah. hiding in forests. Ginger, Irish ginger women in crushed velvet capes. Played. Celts in kilts. One of the worst things I know and see is like the uh, like uh, 18th century uh, Scottish um, tartan being used. <laughs> because it's so originally Celtic. It's like, no, it's not. It's, it's, it's 5,000 years of Celtic continuity. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's horrible. But, uh, but these people anyways, whatever you want to call yeah. them, this, this, uh, this mass culture uh, is basically blocking, it's gonna, cock blocking in a way. It's going to navy from the rest of the world okay yeah uh, so um uh, and it's probably true if people were traveling far to marry as we sometimes yeah. think you know the people were crossing young women were from prominent families were crossing the continent too yeah but the interesting thing is that um of course we do have objects from uh, continental origin finding its way into scandinavia but it's far less and less frequent than it was in the bronze age and they might be envious for the you know the glorious you know the womb of nations. Yeah, why would they not be envious of Scandinavia? <laughs> there's something, there's at least something. Or unbiased know. to sense. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Wetland sacrifices. How? Yeah. Where does it go from here? So, so what we do see is the increased uh, use of people. Yeah. Uh, as a means to probably communicate with the gods. With the gods. You've been listening to part one of Wetland Sacrifices. In the next episode, we will be covering the juicy bits with some of our favorite bog bodies. We will also get into some of the less sinister practices related to marshes and wetlands, including, believe it or not, prehistoric hair products. If you're interested in cult sites and fertility rites in pre-Christian Scandinavia, I'm proud to inform that I just finished a comprehensive essay on the so-called sacred white stones. Echoes of an Ancient Scandinavian Fertility Cult. Now up on BruteNorse.com. Finally, I would like to thank patrons both old and new for your very generous support. Without you, this podcast is nothing. Brute Norse is nothing. And if you would like to become one, head on over to Patreon.com forward slash Brute Norse. Survey the rewards and find a tier that suits your abilities and desires. On that note, there's nothing left to do but wish you all a good night. You've been listening to the Brute Norse podcast where we walk backwards into the future. Be healthy and content. Hail Oxal.